This is an ABC podcast. Imagine you're a man. For some of you, that might not be stretching your imagination much, but stay with me. You're a man and you're approaching a set of doors, and just behind you is a woman who's also heading towards the doors. You both arrive, and what do you do? Well, if you're a nice guy, maybe you hold the doors open for her. Maybe you let her through first. But wait, is that sexist? Well, would you do the same for a man? But hang on, either way, does it even matter all that much? It's really easy to trivialize the notion of benevolent sexism. Like, I'm not supposed to hold the door open and I'm a terrible person if I do that. We're not saying that. It's really these other things at work. Benevolent sexism is a term coined by psychology researchers Susan Fisk and Peter Glick, and it's part of their ambivalent sexism theory. The idea that sexism has these two forms, hostile and benevolent, and you can't really understand it and its impact without considering both types. And while holding doors is an admittedly simplistic example, professors Fisk and Glick say benevolent sexism plays out in all sorts of harmful ways, in the home, at work, and beyond. So the the problem that Peter and I were trying to solve when we invented the ambivalent sexism idea was how do you have two groups of unequal status? And there are lots of groups of unequal status in society, but who live together. So you think about it, it's very complicated to keep the system going where women have lower status in society, but men and women marry each other. You are listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, sexism with a side of benevolence. I'm Susan Fisk. I'm a professor at Princeton University, and I've been studying stereotyping and prejudice for more than 40 years. I'm Peter Glick, and I'm also a professor. I'm at a liberal arts college called Lawrence University in Wisconsin. I've collaborated with Susan for many, many years and probably have been studying sexism for over 30. Professors Fisk and Glick first published their ambivalent sexism theory back in the mid-90s. And you can probably guess what hostile sexism is. Basically, it's blatantly negative attitudes and behaviours towards women. But benevolent sexism is a bit tricky. It's wily, harder to pin down and prosecute because it's usually well-meaning. What we thought was that because of the dynamics between men and women, there's also a lot of affection, but some of the affection is kind of paternalistic and it means well, perhaps, or it feels good to the person who's behaving that way, but it, it subordinates the person it's directed to. So that's why we call it benevolent, but there are air quotes around benevolent. What I would add to it is is subjectively, it's it's positive attitudes and affection toward women. But what we found after decades of studying this and other people studying it that has really I, at least shocked me is how insidious this is in terms of undermining women. And so there is this curious combination of affection with undermining. And so what, what are these attitudes that you're talking about? What does benevolent sexism look like? So benevolent sexism, we've divided both hostile and benevolent sexism into three kind of subcategories. For benevolent sexism, part of it is paternalism. And so it's this notion that women are kind of these fragile flowers who need to be provided for, protected, and cared for by men, that they can't really make their way in the harsh world themselves without men doing this for them. 
Another part of it has to do with heterosexual intimacy because that's an underlying factor that really drives this forward that because of heterosexuality, you know, it's, it's a situation, the old ambivalent saying, can't live with them, can't live without them. Benevolent sexism has this intimate heterosexuality part, but can't live without them part. And so that drives a lot of positive attitudes toward women as, you know, these objects of romantic attraction for heterosexual men. And then the other part of it has to do with gender roles and these complementary roles. So men are supposed to be out there traditionally being the provider and women are the nurturers. And of course, you know, we all have these positive affectionate feelings toward nurturers. But the problem with it is that we often don't respect them in the same way we respect somebody based on, say, a paid career. So I can give you an example. I worked with a Chinese colleague at one point to look at sexism in China and in the U.S., and what we found in both countries was that while people are courting, there's a lot of benevolent sexism that goes on. Oh, let me help you with that. Let me open the door for you. Let me put you on a pedestal and talk about how wonderful and pure and moral. And, you know, I worship the ground you walk on. This is the guy saying all this. And then they get married and suddenly hostile sexism sets in and you don't keep the house clean enough. And, you know, you don't look after the kids the way I would. And women are just trying to manipulate men. And, and there's a lot of sort of paranoid hostility that comes out. So benevolent sexism is more a courtship thing. And um, hostile sexism at home, at least, is more once people are married. Given that benevolent sexism includes things like chivalry, do you think people generally struggle to accept that benevolent sexism is something that's actually bad or damaging? Is it a concept that people struggle with? Oh, yes. And I struggle with this in a little bit of a way because benevolent sexism is so infused with notions of heterosexual romance. So when you talk about chivalry, where, where do we see chivalry? It's really rooted in notions of heterosexual romance. So all of our romantic scripts really have kind of benevolent sexism built in. And, and maybe if you're a man, maybe expected by your partner as well. And you may have been trained by your mother to treat a woman like a lady. The problem with chivalry is that it's got such limits. So it sounds really nice and it can be very attractive. And the research shows that women are attracted to benevolently sexist men. They see this as a sign of caring and that this will be my benevolent prince who will, you know, who will rescue me. I mean, think about, you know, Disney movies have changed. I've got a two-year-old granddaughter and we watch Moana and Frozen. So it's a little bit different, you know, these movies now, but the sort of traditional Disney movie, the prince comes and rescues the princess and it's, it's all part of heterosexual love. So that's really hard to tease apart. The problem with chivalry is that it's often kind of an illusion and a way to control women. Maybe you know the song, uh, Ain't No Woman Like the One I've Got, right? Classic four top song. There's a line in there that always just slams me, right? It goes, I kiss the ground she walks on, but it's my word, my word she obeys. There it is in a nutshell, right? In this song, this ambivalence is right there. And that's, that's the lie, right? She's the best thing ever in this song, but she will ultimately obey me. So why do some women prefer benevolently sexist men? 
One idea is that such attitudes and behaviours signal that a man is willing to invest in a relationship, that is, to protect, provide and commit. I reckon the man should wear the pants, you know. He should sort of be the boss in the family, you know. That's what researchers Pellen Gull and Tom Kupfer argued in a 2018 study, leaning on evolutionary and sociocultural theories on mate preference as part of their argument. Well, I'd rather him go out to work and earn the money than me go out and earn the money and look after the kids. Gull and Kupfer surveyed over 700 women about their preferences. They got them to read the profiles of men who exhibited benevolently sexist attitudes or behaviours, and then rate their attractiveness and other characteristics. They found women rated the benevolently sexist men more attractive, despite also viewing them as patronising. If you're going to boil it down, ambivalent sexism theory says, look, universally, there is male dominance more or less, right? It depends on what place in the world you're at. Some, you know, regions and countries are much more unequal than others, but there's no place where women have really achieved parity on all levels. So there's male dominance baked into a lot of history. And then there's heterosexuality. And that's the factor that really brings men and women into these familial relationships, these romantic relationships, all of those other sort of interdependencies. So that's the central paradox of gender relations. You know, we've got this male dominance, but interdependence on women. Yeah, the way you describe it, it makes it feel very much like a, a, a very clever trap for women almost. And, and one of the questions I wanted to ask was, you know, is how um, benevolent sexism, in terms of how it holds women back, is it different to hostile sexism or do the two work in concert? And it sounds like the two very much work in concert. Well, I think they're directed at different women outside of your close relationship. So women who adhere to traditional gender roles the woman in the office who makes the coffee for people, you know, brings in cookies and is the sort of social cheerleader for everybody. You know, the men in the office stereotypically will appreciate her but not respect her, right? But the woman in the office who is ambitious and hard-driven and doesn't take any baloney from anybody, you know, they might respect her, but they won't like her. And she will be the object of hostile sexism and they'll try to sabotage her. So, you know, women at work really walk a, a very narrow tightrope between being considered a bitch or being not taken seriously. You know, men have tightropes too, but this is the particular one that women are dealt. When I was campaigning for pre-selection, I'd get a series of issues raised with me. You're too young, you're not married, you're not partnered, you know. This tightrope at work is exactly what several women discussed in the recent ABC series Misrepresented, which covered the tricky terrain women have to navigate in politics. And then they used to say, oh, she's ambitious, you can't have her. So I simply replied, you bet I'm ambitious. It's extraordinary to me that still after all these years, um, the worst criticism of a woman seeking pre-selection is that, yeah, but she's ambitious. And it's not like it's a left versus right thing. Women across the political spectrum spoke about their experiences. I remember one time I was having an argument with a colleague. As I didn't agree with him. I said, I, I think you're wrong. And he, he started yelling at me. And he said, why are you being so aggressive? And I said, you're the one shouting. But he experienced my disagreement as aggression. 
But politics is just one arena where these sexist attitudes, both benevolent and hostile, persist. You know, you talked about how they work together. We see them as the carrot and the stick, right? Men want to be intermittently interdependent with women. They want them safely in their place. They want to mollify them to some degree, but they don't want to give up their privileges and resources and their power. But, you know, the thing about benevolent sexism and the research shows actually women respond with motivation to prove themselves when they're faced with hostile sexism. I mean, hostile sexism does deter them from fields for sure, but it also can motivate women to prove their worth. Benevolent sexism, as Susan said, is much more insidious because it undermines their confidence. It seems nice, and you can even see this in an MRI, that regions associated with doubt and questioning oneself you know, will light up. So it creates this doubt and lack of confidence that is ultimately much more damaging. And then when you give women this other alternative, well, a man will take care of you. Uh, here's another insidious thing about benevolent sexism. Women who endorse benevolently sexist attitudes when they're adolescents are less likely to seek more ambitious higher education. They're less likely to have stronger career goals because why? Why bother? That's not going to make you romantically attractive. What's going to make you romantically attractive is investing in beauty and and not being too high-powered because that's not likable, right? And so if you do that, then a man will provide for you. It really sets you up. If that turns out to go bad, as often marriages do, then you're, you're left in this position where you have given up opportunity to really provide well for yourself. So that's another way in which it's very insidious. And Susan, do you have any memories of being subjected to benevolent sexism yourself, whether in career or otherwise? Yeah, sure. I was saying the other night that I had an experience of giving a talk at a famous university, which I won't name, not Western, not a Western university, where, you know, I was very, very pleased to be invited to give this talk. And it was a very elegant room with elegantly dressed professors. And the introducer said, I'd like to introduce Susan Fisk. Her father was a famous psychologist who published blah, 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 and did this and did that. And her brother is a famous cultural psychologist who does this and that and the other thing. And here's Susan Fisk to speak to you. Hmm. <laughs> you know, and on the surface, it seemed like a very nice thing. You know, he's talking about my family and how famous they are. But the implication was, you know, that I didn't amount to much. And so it was very sort of belittling. So that was putting me in a family context. You know, right. she can't be the famous one in the family. What do you do in that situation? Did you say anything? Well, you never think of the right comeback, right, <laughs> yeah. until later. The other thing was a very good friend of mine, a psychologist, when I was pregnant, he patted my stomach. He was the only person who did that. He <laughs> patted my stomach and he said, oh, you must be feeling very fulfilled. <laughs> I was like flabbergasted that a colleague would pat my stomach for one thing, yeah. but he would make all these assumptions about, you know, what fulfilled me. I mean, I was, my job was pretty fulfilling too. <laughs> yeah. It's hard because people are well-meaning when they do it. I think at least they think they're well-meaning, mm. but they're trying to keep you in your place and you never think of the comeback in, in the moment. Yeah. You know, you always think of it later. <laughs> <laughs> So annoying. Uh, the other thing we found in the research is you're in a really difficult place when it's a benevolent sexism you're confronted with. Hostile sexism, you can imagine the comeback, but benevolent sexism, you sound like you're rejecting someone who's trying to be nice to you. And so if you really want to be seen as the bitch, uh, we, we did one study where... 
you know, was just a, a woman at work say, you know, a man coming up and saying, oh, you're, you're trying to do the network server. That's really difficult. Let me do it for you. And she says, in one condition, she says, oh, that's okay. I can do it myself. And then she just drops in perceived warmth. She's seen as competent, but she drops in perceived warmth. And reviewers told us, well, we had to do the opposite condition, which sounds really weird, right? Even to imagine where a woman tells a man, oh, that's too difficult for you to do. Let me do it for you. Maybe if it's changing a diaper, that would be one thing. But if it's a network server, that sounds really weird. But what we found is when a man refused, you know, he didn't drop in perceived warmth, right? But if he accepted the help, he dropped in perceived competence, just like she did if she accepted the help. So it's really, really difficult position for a woman to call out benevolent sexism. Yeah. It's very difficult. You are listening to All in the Mind on RN. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, benevolent sexism, what it is and how it manifests in our behaviour, ideas and ideals about gender. And as part of Professor Susan Fisk and Professor Peter Glick's original work outlining ambivalent sexism theory, they developed a scale for measuring hostile versus benevolent sexist attitudes. Their scale is still used by researchers today, and it asks you to write how closely you identify with various statements, like... Women compared to men tend to have superior moral sensibility. Most women fail to appreciate fully all that men do for them. Women seek to gain power by getting control over men. Women are too easily offended. Women should be cherished and protected by men. The benevolent sexism items, you know, if you went back 200 years or even maybe 2,000 years, they would still be recognizable to people. It's the hostile sexism items that maybe have changed because now they're more about a reaction to women gaining power. You know, 200 years ago, a hostile sexism item might have been women are dumber than men, right? (laughs) You know, um, people might have endorsed that. But, you know, people don't endorse that in relatively egalitarian nations today. You know, when we put on some of those kinds of really harsh items, people just weren't endorsing them. What the hostile sexism items are about now are this notion that women are trying to usurp men's power. In their subsequent research, Professor Fisk and Professor Glick looked at the prevalence of benevolent sexist attitudes, surveying 15,000 men and women around the world. Western Europe... Uh, especially Northern Europe, like the Scandinavian countries, to some extent, you know, North America, tend to be on the relatively more egalitarian end, uh, although by no means approaching true equality. Um, Then, you know, if you look across the world, there tends to be less equality. Uh, You know, this is very broadly speaking in Asian, Eastern European countries, um, especially some of the, you know, Middle East and, and African nations. South America tends to be, you know, somewhere in between. So cultures differ in the degree of sexism that they exhibit. And there's a gap between men and women so that men express more sexism of both kinds than women do. The gap is bigger on hostile sexism, which makes sense because it's negative toward women. Whereas, you know, benevolent sexism sounds like it might be okay. Maybe, you know, women are have a moral purity that men don't have. Maybe that sounds good. You know, being on a pedestal. In the most sexist countries, the women say, 
Put me on a pedestal? Sure, I'll take that. In fact, they found the more unequal the nation, the more women outpaced men in endorsing benevolent sexism. For women in the most unequal nations, benevolent sexism sounds like a godsend because they don't have power, they don't have their own resources, they don't have opportunity, they're very dependent on men, and so you're going to you know, really endorse benevolent sexism. So hostile sexism in the culture fuels women's endorsement of benevolent sexism because that's the path that's left to them. And so what we came up with was this notion that benevolent sexism is a protection racket. It's like when the the mob comes to your door and says, hey, you know, your business could burn down and suffer some sort of accident, right? But we'll protect you if you pay us. And that's really kind of the deal with ambivalent sexism. You know, if you think about it, who do women need protection against? Or what do they need protection against? It's men. So men are the source of the danger and men are the source of the protection. Sure as hell sounds like a protection racket to me. Mm. Um, There's a great, just one more thing. When I was younger, I was really into science fiction when I was a teenager. And there was this author, James Triptree Jr., who you know won awards and it was kind of the J.D. Salinger of, of science fiction because he never showed up to receive these awards. And it turns out, something revealed years and years later, James Tiptree Jr. was actually Alice Sheldon, who was writing under a male pseudonym in order to get published. And <laughs> she had this great little novella where these astronauts, you know, go near the speed of light and so time dilates and whatever. They come back to Earth and they're they're realizing they're only hearing women's voices. And something <laughs> has happened on Earth where the men have basically been wiped out and the women now have been figured out how to reproduce on their own. And eventually <laughs> the women decide they can't let men back in. And one of the arguments is, but if you don't let us back, who will protect you? And their answer is, well, It seems to us that what we needed protection against was you guys, Mm -hmm. right? So that was a mind-blowing science fiction novella, you know, like what man would come up with this? Well, it wasn't a man. It was a woman. (laughs) Something to add to my reading list. I'd I'd like to bring up, you know, the future is now, really. So I have several friends, women, who one of them said men are too much trouble, but she very much wanted to have kids. So rather than recruiting a relationship, she had the kids with artificial insemination. And so, you know, the future is now. I think women are less, can be less dependent on men for some of the things that some women want. You know, I think things are changing. So do you think things are changing, at least in in the States? I mean, this might be too simplistic, but are they changing overall for the better? Or are we going back or sideways? What do you make of how things have evolved in the, you know, 25 years since you came out with your original paper about ambivalent sexism? I want to acknowledge both the good and the bad. I mean, there were points where I thought, oh, we're just going to sort of put ourselves out of business. Sexism is going to go away. Certainly that has not happened, right? And so sometimes my feeling is the more things change, the more they stay the same, or even that in some ways things are changing for the worse. So women are now perceived as being as competent and sometimes as more competent than men overall in terms of stereotypes. 
but they are also still perceived very strongly as nurturers. And if anything, that has gotten stronger, the seeing women as the nurturers relative to men. And that's the benevolent side, right? Oh, women are these wonderful nurturers. But of course, then, as we saw during the pandemic, at least in the United States, this was you know a disaster for working women in terms of women who had children and bore the brunt of childcare and and all of these other sorts of things. And the other part of the stereotype is agency. And women are still not supposed to seek power and status in the same way as men. And that remains. So it's like, oh yeah, you're competent, but don't use it to really outcompete men. And when Susan was talking about women who kind of feel like, well, I don't need a man, I just need the sperm, right? Um, You know, that just sort of almost viscerally as a man, I'm like, oh, that like hurts, right? You know, with women's progress, overall, it's a good thing. When women make progress and are more equal, they actually get protection from laws, violence against them goes down, they have more status, all these good things happen. But there is also the backlash, and we see that politically. You know, there's a lot of masculinity involved in politics these days, and part of it is this reaction to the change in gender roles. So you might have the arc of history bending toward progress, but you also have a very intensive backlash because there's threat in this to men's traditional privileges and power and position. So I guess like the long-term damage or one of the, the problems with ambivalent sexism is it's it's bad for men and women. Yes, I think that's exactly yes. yeah. right. Yeah, one of the costs for men traditionally is this provider pressure that you should be the sole provider or the main provider and the woman's work is secondary. And and that's a lot of pressure on men traditionally that, you know, that you have to live up to, you know, rather than it being a partnership. And also more women are in the labor force than ever before. So a sexism researcher that Peter and I both admire a lot, Alice Egley, has argued that stereotypes of women have changed, whereas men have less leeway to, to be, you know, stay-at-home daddies. Women can be, you know, working women and, and mommies at the same time. But women are, women are making great strides, and, you know, in many countries, women are graduating from college more than men are. And so I think that's one reason for the change in the stereotypes, is that women are taking control into their own hands. And so I think ultimately that's what will diminish both kinds of sexism. Um, and for anyone listening who's thinking, hang on, I, you know, I'm kind to women, I help them, I, you know, like to open doors, being told that's damaging, I don't agree, you know, I'm just trying to be a nice guy. What would you want to say to that person? Open doors for men too. Open doors for everybody. Yeah, like we we often get this question, so like, so you're not supposed to open door for women. What am I supposed to do? And I'm a guy. Yeah, like, what are you supposed to do, right? Um, are you not supposed to pay on a date and then be seen as a chump and not get a second date? Are you, you know, right? It's a difficult thing to navigate as a man too, and I recognize that. And we're not saying, you know, don't open a door for a woman. I mean, don't make like a huge deal of it, like you're some knight in shining armor because you opened a door. And hey, if some guy is following behind you or it's got his hands full with something, yeah, open it for for him too. It's not a big deal. We, we should be civil to everybody. I mean, the problem with chivalry is that it's often a false promise. Just give you one story about this. We always get pushback on, you know, talking about chivalry as having these negative consequences. Uh, people bring up the Titanic. This is regularly done in articles, right? Women were saved at a higher rate than men. 
And so there's this great study done by some researchers who looked at maritime disasters where they had manifests and they know who survived and who didn't, where there were women on board all the way, I think, from the 18th centuries up to, I think, a little bit before the Costa Concordia. And what they found is the Titanic was one of two exceptions to the general rule. So when people bring up the Titanic, and the other one I think is the Lusitania, where women were saved at higher rates, what actually happened was the male patriarch, the authority figure, the captain, enforced the rule women and children first. And the general trend, however, is who survives at higher rates? The male crew members. They're the first to know that the shit's hit the fan. (laughs) Male passengers followed by women and then children. Wow, right. So really, I'm not saying the chivalry doesn't sometimes fulfill its promise, but historically, it really has been something that's been used to tell a nice romantic story that actually has put women into very vulnerable positions. That's Professor Peter Glick from Lawrence University. And before him, his longtime collaborator, Professor Susan Fisk from Princeton University. That's it for All in the Mind this week. Our producer is James Bullen. Sound engineer is Anne-Marie de Betancourt. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. <laughs>